A very warm welcome to episode four of the Cricket Library podcast. I'm your host, Matt Ellis, and it has been an absolute pleasure doing this latest series during the Ashes. We've had some very enjoyable and engaging guests on the show. Nina Stevens kicked things off. We also heard from Greg Campbell and most recently entertainer Marty Roan. And if you've missed any of those, I strongly recommend that you head to iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you like to listen to your podcasts and catch up on those. But don't do that just yet. I want you to hang around and have a listen to this one. We are chatting today with someone who toured on the 1993 Ashes Tour. He even picked up a hat-trick on that tour. He was a very distinguished first-class cricketer for New South Wales in their dominant era in the late 80s and into the early 90s. I am, of course, talking about Wayne Cracker Holsworth. He is on today to discuss all things pertaining to his career, including where it all began. Uh, We'll talk about his time at East Hills Boys High School with a couple of famous names at that school. Well, they go on to be famous names. And the progression from grade cricket into putting on the baggy blue and playing for New South Wales and what a magical debut he had. We'll talk about that one at the MCG back in January 1989. We'll talk the 1993 Ashes Tour, of course, and a little bit of insight into the Julios and Nerds on that tour. I really get fascinated by the Julios and Nerds. There's some good insights there from Wayne about them. And of course, we could not talk to Wayne Holdsworth without mentioning his 49 not out off 18 balls in the Mercantile Mutual Cup back at the North Sydney Oval. This is a chat that you will enjoy for sure. Here it is, Wayne Holdsworth on the Cricket Library podcast. And it's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast, Wayne Holdsworth. No worries, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on and great to be talking to you during an Ashes series. Now, can you tell us a little bit about where your cricket journey started? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I was a boy out in the western suburbs of uh, Sydney. I went to East Hills Ball, um, which was quite a dominant cricket school at the time. I was lucky enough to have Stephen and Mark Waugh a couple of years above me. and uh, We had obviously a pretty decent cricket side at the time, so... Um, played my first grade game for Bankstown, I think, when I was about sort of 15, and played my first first grade game when I was 19. Ended up playing 22 years with the one club, so um, pretty loyal guy, I guess, to the, to the team who I represented, and um, yeah, I was lucky enough to you know, play around with some good players at the time. A pretty strong history there at the Bankstown Cricket Club. You mentioned the War Boys there. There were, there were quite a lot of other New South Wales players that played in that era, was that uh, a bit of a driving force for you, having those guys in and around you when you're growing up to give you a bit of a desire to see where you could take your cricket? Yeah, I guess it has to. You know, If you're surrounded by people who are probably at the top of their game, it, it makes you want to perform better, obviously, to not impress them, but to see what lengths and you know, heights you can reach yourself. And the fact that I guess the War Boys came from East Hills Boys High, I thought, well, if they can do it, potentially I can do it as well. And we got on quite well. So, um, and as you mentioned, you know, Bankstown had a pretty rich cricket history. You know, when I came through when I was in fifth grade, you know, we obviously had, uh, Jeff Thompson, Les Pascoe in first grade. And, 
you know, guys like Steve Smith, Steve Small, and, you know, we had David Friedman there as well. So there's a period there, I think, with the first grade side that I played with, we had five state players on the one side. So, um, a sort of pedigree like that, you know, I think you have to perform well because, you know, it's either sink or swim in a team like that. Now, you mentioned you'd made your debut as a 19 year old in first grade. What was the progression like through the grades? Was it a pretty quick, rapid progression up the grades? Yeah, I was a pretty driven sort of guy. So my plan was, uh, I sort of looked when I was in fifth grade, I looked at, you know, the, obviously the players above me. My plan was to go up pretty much at a grade per year. And then I broke it down, thought, okay, well, how do I do that? Um, you know, and then I looked at who the leading wicket takers were in each grade from the season before, and they had, you know, somewhere between sort of 35 and 45 wickets. So that became my target. So every year I'd set myself a target of what the previous wicket taker took from the year before in that grade. Um, and I was lucky enough, obviously, to go up one grade per year at the time and, and play first grade four years later. But, I mean, obviously, plans always don't go that way. But, um, yeah, you know, as I said, I was a pretty driven individual and, you know, I set myself some pretty high targets to achieve. And luckily enough, you know, I, I didn't always achieve the targets I wanted from that year. But, you know, in terms of selections, you know, I still achieved what I wanted to there. And going from being a first grader as a 19-year-old, you make your first class debut in January 1989. How long mm-hmm. had you had in the first grade system prior to making that debut? Uh, season and a half. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was funny because I played Aussie under-19s. I came through that system as well and stayed under-16s and I played two years in the Aussie under-19s. So I guess I was on the radar a little bit with New South Wales selectors. I was in the squad the year after my first grade, first first grade season. And um, I was obviously getting talked about because because of my pace. You know, I was one of the quicker than most in the grades at that time. So, um, and I remember Greg Matthews walking up to me in the first training session at uh, New South Wales Cricket, and he said, "Do you want some advice on how to get picked?" And I looked at him and I said, "Yeah, sure." And he just said, "Hit people," <laughs> which I thought was a bit strange, <laughs> but he said, "We need people who can scare people." And he said, "I hear you can be one of those guys." And so, um, you know, and I. I it was a bit strange because I was dropped from one of the Metro State Metro squads when I was 16 and I outbowled everybody at that trial match and I looked at the coach at the time and I said, so why did I miss out? And he said, mate, we just think you're too short to be a good quick bowler. And I guess that spurred me on because I looked at Malcolm Master, who was a hero of mine and, you know, I'm top 10 and I think he was just over 5 foot 10 as well. So I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And then, uh, yeah, you know, I made that state squad and then I was a net bowler for the touring teams when they came over. So there was one particular tour when the West Indies came over and I was a net bowler to Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes and those wow. guys. And I remember Desmond Haynes got interviewed and they were talking about, you know, the Australian cricket team and he mentioned my name. He said, are you going to pick anyone pick that kid over there? He said, he's the fastest I've faced. And that went in the newspapers and I think that's probably where it all turned. Yeah. Um, and then it got to Christmas and I was sort of getting talked about a little bit but I thought my chance had gone because all the test players are pretty much still starting to come back into the side and then I got picked in that match at the end of January to play the Vicks in Melbourne and in that side there was only myself and Phil Emery had to play test cricket so you know there's 10 guys that had or still were playing test cricket so you know I guess from that point of view I thought you know I, I missed the boat as I said but you know to get picked there was uh, you know obviously a dream come true and then to play at the MCG was you know an even bigger achievement I guess. And how were the nerves going in into that? Did you were you able to just kind of treat it as another game of cricket, or was it youthful exuberance and and ready to show everyone what you could do? 
It was a bit of everything, really. Um, and I've got to give a bit of credit to Jeff Lawson here. Uh, because we got Whitney and Lawson opened the bowling, and uh, you know, I sort of went, hang on a minute. But yeah, okay, they're, they're, yeah, they're testing coming, so I was faster than the both of them. But, yeah. And then we had the drinks break, and then uh, I think it was about another few hours, and then Jeff just walked up and said, you're on next over. And I said, but I'm not ready. Yeah. And he said, you're not, he said, you're not at Bankstown now, you're on next over. He said, so get ready. So I really had no choice, and then I was warming up, and then, uh, yeah, at the top of the mark, I didn't really have a chance to take it all in. And Michael we just walked over and said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm just going to try and bowl a straight one. He said, perfect, and then he walked away. Uh, and then I bowled the ball, and uh, I remember, it was all a bit of a blur at the time, but I remember I saw Phil Emery's hands go up, and then I realised that I just flicked the bail of Dad Watmore's stump, so I took a wicket with my first ball. Um, so obviously that doesn't happen a lot. Uh, the <laughs> weird thing about that was, when we were flying down on the plane, Michael Whitney had a book that's just been released from New South Wales called True to the Blue. And he's a real stats man, a records man. He's looking at all these things and records and he says, he's wicked on first ball, he's five wickets in the innings on the boo, you know, he's hat trick and he's rattling off all these things. He said, you could do this before again. And I just stand like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, four balls later, I had Jamie Siddons caught it slip and then on the sixth ball, I had Dean Jones drop the slip of Peter Howard. So I had two for none in my first over and I catch dropped on the sixth ball. So, at the end of that hour, I was walking down and I had two for none. And I thought, well, if I pull a hamstring here or do whatever and never play again, I'm going to be regarded as the best ball I've ever taken two for none in my first hour of the do. But ended up with six for 55, so it wasn't a bad start. Yeah, great start. And then, then second innings, I was brought back down to earth with a sudden crash, and I think I had one to 70 off about 12 overs. Yeah, right. So a bit of reality check in the second innings, but the the feeling of taking a six for on the MCG on debut really got your first-class career flying. Yeah, I guess it, you know, to, to take figures like that um, you know, in your first game, it's, it's quite rare. And I guess the way that I got them as well, you know, like they have a lot more, you know, who was a season player and knocking sort of stumps over. And then look at Jamie Simmons with a bounce. So it was a lot fuller, but I was just so nervous because I had the wicket and I didn't know what to do. And I just stuck in my hand and ended up being a bouncer that pretty much was going to hit the badge on his helmet. He just stuck his gloves up and it went up in the air. But um, once I settled, it was a bit weird. It's, um, like I said, because I had a couple of wickets, I think that probably put me in good stead because I was a little bit calmer. I, I knew I could take a wicket. I guess if I went for you know, four or five runs and over my first three or four overs, it would have made it a little bit tougher. Yeah. And, and New South Wales in that era um, – you won the Shield 89-90, 92-3, 93-4. And I think um, New South Wales played in five Shield finals in a row. Yeah. Uh, the the culture of New South Wales cricket at the time, can you describe what made it so special? Um, Steve Richen had a lot to do with it as coach. Um, I remember when he took over, it was in my second year in the squad, he just came in with this real old school approach. He did everything until he got it right. Uh, he didn't leave the field until he got it right. Um, yeah, and he, he called a spade a spade. If you had a bad day, he'd walk up and say you had a bad day. So, you know, he was, he was brutally honest. And I think at the time, a lot of the players, some players probably didn't take that that well, but then the ones who thrived probably did. And then he just created a, a good, strong winning culture. Um, through our training and just through the way that he made us train and prepare for games and he was quite thorough in his research with players that we played against as well. I mean, this is all the times before we had obviously all the software and everything we do now. But, um, and also, 
you know, at the SCG, that was in the days when it spun like a top. And, you know, we had Greg Matthews and Adrian Tucker and Peter Taylor. So I think it was a period there for four years we didn't lose a game at the SCG. So it was just, it was a bit of a fortress for us as well. And we had this aura, I guess, when we played there. We were virtually unbeatable at the SCG. So we always had at least a guaranteed five wins a season, which would get you in the Shield final. And and the season 92-93, was that one of the more memorable ones for you? 53 wickets in the season, um, a dominant display in that Shield final. I think it was against Queensland going going into an Ashes year. How much did it mean to you to be producing the goods in, in 92-3 in that lead up to the Ashes? Yeah, it was a strange one because um, I was dropped from the team in I think it was early January. Um, just through lack, lack of wickets, I got twelve wickets in uh, five games or fourteen wickets in five games or something like that. So I was playing myself like second level down in Melbourne, and I thought you know that was pretty much the year over for me. And then um, I got six wickets in the second level game, and I missed the I think it was the next short game, and I played the one after that. And then yeah, it all just turned around. I took forty wickets in five games and three sevens in a row, and. Uh, then obviously it finished with that seven forty one in the Shield final. I remember, you know, walking off, and one of the journos interviewed me. And he said, "You know, you're a fair chance of going to Ashes Tour. What are your thoughts?" And I said, "Look, Michael Whitney missed out in '89 with fifty wickets, you know, and I've had a pretty ordinary year for the start. I haven't finished, you know, I finished well, but I'm probably a little bit inconsistent being picked." And I got my head off, but maybe I'm still a chance. But I was sort of hedging my bets because I, you know, I wasn't renowned as you know a bowler on when he, but when he's off, he's really off. So. I didn't know whether the selectors would take that into account or whether they purely just picking on the form that I finished on the end of the year. And luckily enough, they, they did the new crack. And, you know, I can sit back now and say I was lucky enough to go on the Ashes tour. And, and a pretty strong bowling group on, on that Ashes tour. It was the one when Shane Warne really rose to prominence and, and Big Merv and Paul Rifle leading that attack um, with Craig McDermott succumbing to an injury there. Can you yeah. t- tell us your recollections of of your time on that tour? Yeah, it was a, on reflection. Like when I got back, I was a little bit disappointed um, because I, going into that first test with my numbers and my stats, because you used to get pages each week about where you were sitting in terms of numbers, so you knew what your form was like, what your bowling average was like. And you know, I was up there with Merv and Craig, and I was doing really well. And I was the sort of bowler. Always need to keep bowling. If I had two or three weeks off for some reason, just because of the way I bowled, I'm not sure I'd lose it. Yeah. So you know, I need to bowl consistently, and then uh, I thought it was a fair chance of getting picked in the first test. And then when I wasn't, I approached Mark Taylor and said, "Hey, you know, like, can you give me a reason as to why? Just so, you know, something I'm not doing right, or you know, where am I at?" And he said they just want to go with a left-hander and they picked Brendan Gillian. Yeah. So from that moment, I knew he was going to play obviously at least the first two tests. They're not going to pick someone and drop them after one test or two tests and potentially play three. So the only way I thought I'd get picked after that was you know, if there was injuries or, you know, it's just circumstance and they decided to give me a crack. But um, those were the days as well where the, there was no rotation policy. So if yeah. I was a fit, they played. So it made it, you know, increasingly difficult for me. And then obviously you had Shane Warne, you know, weaving his magic and Tim May at the other end. So the bowling attack pretty much stayed the same for the whole series. Apart from when... Um, Craig went home, and then you know, obviously Brendan played a bit more, but I was on standby for the last test at the Oval, and Alan all the way through said, you'll play at the Oval, and then uh, I was on, when I was on standby for Tim May, he had a hamstring strain, and he bowled really well, and then uh, 
I thought, well, and that's, and then Alan walked up to me that night when I was on standby and he said, look, even if you check check yourself, we're going to play. And he said, I just got to let you know that you're, you know, you're in our eyes. And I said, okay, that's fine. Look, I get it. And it's a major play. We lost the test and got him up and cleaned us up. And, you know, it was one of the fastest wickets we played on for the whole series. So you know, that was a disappointing thing because I just thought if I had a shot there, that may have changed things for me a little bit. But not to be, and that's the way it goes. And uh, other highlights on, on, on the tour, um, I suppose you get asked about this a lot. Your you hat trick uh, against Derbyshire. Can you can you talk us through that and what what that was like taking a hat trick in Australian colours? Yeah, that's another interesting story because uh, I think the day before I had one for I think it was seventy or eighty off uh, nine or ten overs. So I was getting hit all over the place, and I remember sitting at the bar with people that night. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I can't bowl any worse. And he said, yeah, I agree. So he said, let's have a beer. And we had a couple of beers. And next I bowled. This is massive booming out. So I thought, that's a bit weird. I didn't do that yesterday. And then I took four wickets in my next, I think, 15 balls or something with the hat trick. Uh, so it was a complete, yeah, turnaround from one day to the next day. And I finished with, yeah, I think it's five for 100 or something. Um, but the unfortunate thing was for the guy who was the hat trick uh, wicket, he actually didn't hit it. <laughs> um, and I've got video highlights of Tim Zero taking the catch and sort of goes to throw it the first slip yeah. and then you just see him look straight back at the umpire and then everyone starts patting me on the back and I remember hearing the umpire behind me go yes that's out and the guy hit his pad and it was one of those ones where he could sort of go yeah he hit it or he did but I could see that he probably didn't hit it Yeah. Uh, but the poor guy was given out and I got a hat trick but you, know, you take the good with the bad there's other balls where I thought I've probably got guys in get out throw it and the funny part was Alan Border walked up with a ball and he said, you're not going to keep this ball up. And I said, well, what do you do when you get 100? And he went, yeah, good point. <laughs> and that was where he left it. Oh, there you go. So a, a bit unlucky for the for the batter on that occasion, but uh, a hat-trick all the same. And I think you were quoted in the paper saying that the, the last time you'd had a hat-trick prior to that was in the backyard bowling to your sister. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I was on a heap of hat-tricks as a kid but never got one. Yep. Um and it's just one of those things, you know. And fortunately, you know, to get one for your country is obviously a, you know, a high honour. And you know, I sit back now and think, wow, you know, I've got a hat trick from the country. But um, yeah, I never. It's one of those things. I only got the one, and that's the way it went. You know, there's other guys got three, four, five, six, you know, three juniors and things like that. But yeah, only the one for me my whole life. And on that tour, meeting the Queen, how was that? Yeah, there's a lot of protocol that goes on there. Um, so you're told you can only say sir or ma'am as they uh, as they come to uh, greet you. You can't ask them any questions unless they ask you a question. Um, so yeah, it's uh, yeah you, you just you can't put a, a foot out of line. And then uh, I remember Merv, he said to me, "I'm going to just tell her a joke." <laughs> and Merv was that sort of guy. And yeah. we said, "You can't." He said, "No, I'm going to tell her a joke." So she would walk down first, and then you would have uh, Prince Philip walk down after her. So there'd be the Queen first, then Prince Philip. So I was looking down on the left to see what Merv was going to do as he met the Queen, not realising I had Prince Philip in front of me. And then Alan looked at me and he said, Wayne, and I, and I went, sorry, and I shook his hand. <laughs> that mean he had a smirk on his face. Um, but yeah, I just didn't know what to do. But it was an interesting time because we got a few wickets down and if we knocked over the last couple before tea, we're actually going to go and have meet the Queen at the castle, but uh, we didn't manage to knock out those last couple of weeks before tea, so we met them on the ground. But, yeah, again, you know, a tour like that, walk away and say I've met the Queen, it's something not many people obviously get the choice, the chance to do. So, 
Now I've got the photo at home and, yeah. One of the other things uh, I loved about the culture of Australian cricket at the time was the whole Julios and nerds um, groupings. Uh, yeah. There's something that you read about in Stephen Waugh's tour diaries and, and so forth. Was was that good fun, being in, being in the Julios and the nerds? You, you were one of the Julios, yeah. I take it? Yeah, apparently, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the captain decided who was in which group and then, yeah, there was a number of activities over the course of the tour just to try and break things up and have a bit of fun. You know, there was 10 pin bowling, various different other sort of just fun activities and, you know, whoever came last basically had this outfit which we call the Daktari and the Daktari is like a safari outfit that you had to wear for the next team function. Um, luckily, I didn't have to wear it. Oh, no, I did. That's right. I did have to wear it once. But yeah, I mean, that, that was a good time because that was the 93 girls, like one of for four and a half months, I think. Yeah. And then after that, they changed it to the one day side going and then the test side going. And now it's back to obviously 17 guys go, but it's, the format's much shorter now. You know, the format that we had was you'd play a game before the test, then the test, and the game after the test, and another game before the next test, and after the test. And that was how you went through the whole series. Whereas now, like, they go over there, they play two matches before the first test, and then they're into it. So, you know, on a tour like that for four and a half, five months, you have to do something because you're in each other's pockets. You're in a bus every day. Um, it can get quite, uh, not claustrophobic or cabin fever, but it just breaks up the monotony a bit. But we're lucky enough to have guys like Merv Hughes there who, you know, there's never a dull moment with him. You know, uh, just to you know, make things a bit more fun. Any standout nerds? Any, sorry, standout? Standout nerds on the tour? Tim May, classic. Yeah, um, <laughs> Tim May's clothing was straight out of Kmart and Lowe's. Uh, he actually thought he looked all right, but you'd see him some days and he just, what he was thinking, but uh, yeah, he was by far the number one nerd and uh, I think he was quite proud of it as well. Yeah, yeah. And on the Julio front, your Brendan Julians, your Mark Wars, your Shane Warns, they would have been... Been classic. Oh, yeah, they were, they were leaders. You know, Damien Martin was in there as well. So, yeah. But Brendan Julian, yeah, he was he was the, the king of the Julio's, I guess. He was the one that got the most fan mail from the girls. And, <laughs> you know, the air was never out of place and he always went to back um, Again, like, you had the king of the nerds who always, I think, pushed the envelope to become the king nerd. But still made it. You had Brendan Julian who knew he had a taste of hold, So he was always, you know, as I said, dressed immaculately, he was always cleanly shaven. You know, I had the best fragrances. <laughs> now, now coming back to Australia, the the following summer, uh, and another memory uh, that I have strongly from your career was was not with the ball, and probably one that you still get asked about a lot to this day. Take us back to North Sydney Oval, uh, October nineteen ninety three. You come in to bat number nine, and. You pulverised Tasmania. You, you smashed 49 not out off 18 balls. Uh, you're in a 56-run partnership with Phil Emery, which I notice Phil only faced seven balls. So you're, you're obviously farming the strike as well. Was that your your greatest day out with the bat? Uh, for New South Wales, definitely, yeah. My highest first-class score was 34 not out. Uh, but that day then, yeah, it was one of those days that just everything went right. I remember when I was walking out the bat, Mark Taylor just said, you know, if you can it was sort of two eighty, two ninety. I'll be happy, which was about thirty more runs. Um, and when I walked out the bat, Phil said, "What's the plan?" He said, "Mate, we'll just go to bat. You know, the next four or five overs, and if we can get to two eighty, two ninety, he's happy." And then I just started swinging, and then 
as I said, it was just one of those days. Everything I swung and I just connected with me. So they didn't go over the fence. They went into the fence. And, uh, yeah, the, it was the year that they had the fastest 50. And I think Damien Martin was leading at that year. I think it was five grand who ever got it. And he had it in 34 balls. So I was way ahead of that. And then uh, off the last ball, I needed three. And only managed to get a two. And that was it. I got 49 off 18. And then uh, Mark Ward set a trap. So he told it. They clapped me when I came in and everybody sit with their heads down just pretend like nothing had happened. <laughs> and then I walked, came back down and walked in the dressing room and there was complete silence. And I'm looking at them all going sort of, you know, what's the deal here? And then Mark Wall looked up. He said, well, if you could follow, you could be good all around up. <laughs> and that was just where he left it. But he then signed that in the back of the bat. He said, two Wayne Holds were all the best. If you could follow, you'd be a great all rounder, Mark Wall. <laughs> so I batted with that bat for the rest of the year. Oh, classic. Classic stuff, and and you're involved in a couple of runouts in that game as well. You picked up a wicket, um, but one one of the things I noticed about that game it's the only time that Richard Chiqui bowled in domestic one day cricket. Can you tell us a bit about his bowling? None for three. Yeah, his bowling was atrocious. Um, <laughs> we did that a couple of times in a few games. It was it was more when the games pretty much had. The result was done. There was nowhere to go. Phil Emery bowled in the game they played, I think, in South Australia. But, yeah, Richard, when he came with the bowl, he said he bowled leg spin, but they were, I don't know what they were. They didn't look like leg spin and landed somewhere near the stumps, and that was that. But, yeah, you wouldn't call it bowling, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Now, life after cricket for Wayne Holsworth, what's the transition out of first-class cricket been like for you? Yeah, it's been a mixed bag. I've been involved in beverages for a number of years uh, in sales, probably pretty much since my last couple of years with New South Wales Cricket. Uh, you know, I worked for Heineken for a number of years and I worked for Chills Wines, who were a sponsor of New South Wales Cricket for five or six years. And Then I had a coconut water company I was involved with for about four or five years as well. And now I've just started a new role last six months with a company called Arith. We supply all the muffins and burgers and everything at McDonald's and bread rolls and pastries in Woolworths and BP and Caltex and things like that. So I'm the, the business development manager there and uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's something completely different. As I said, I've been involved in drinks pretty much my whole life. But to go into a baking business, it's, a, it's something I'm learning about every day. And, you know, it's good because it's a new challenge and I think having a new challenge has sort of given me a bit of a you know, zest to sort of pick things up again and and keep going. I was getting a little bit stale with where I was at previously, so it's always good. To, you know, they always say a change is good as a holiday. So, yeah, things have been good. And and I'm still involved in the game. I do. I'm bowling coach with the Mossman Cricket Club, and I do a lot of personal stuff as well with one-on-one. And so cricket still is a part of my life, and but it always will be. And, and you still uh, find time to watch the cricket? You've been watching the Ashes this year? Yeah, I've been watching the Ashes as well. Um, I, I don't stay up super late. I'll probably watch the first session and I just I hit the sack, but you know, it's been an interesting series and certainly doing turn on its head, but the last match, you know, with uh, Archer coming in and, you know, bouncing the hell out of everybody, but it's added certainly to the firepower for the bomb now. And I think it's getting a bit more spark to the series. Uh, you know, I, I sort of, before the team went over, you know, I was asked how I thought they went, and I was, a bit, was always a bit wary, you know, because obviously Jimmy Anderson, I thought, would play, and our guys don't play the swinging ball all over there and the ball that moves off the wicket, which has been sort of proven a little bit with David Warner at the moment. I think we've been lucky that Jimmy hasn't played, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, things could have been a little bit different. but And obviously, Steve Smith has just been out of the box since he's been there. He's been incredible. So I think this test will be a true indication of where the team's at, where we, you know, where we think we are. And 
yourself being the all-time record wicket-taker at, at Bankstown grade cricket, 511 wickets in first grade, f- phenomenal numbers. Do you, do you still get back and see the odd game of grade cricket from time to time? Yeah, well, obviously being bowling coach at Mossman, I'm at grade cricket every weekend, uh, and I still stick my head in the bank's down every now and then to have a look. You know, obviously that's, that was a big part of my life. I played 21 years now, I think, so, um, you know, they gave me opportunities, you know, to do what I did, and, you know, they were a great place to play, so that'll never, I guess, leave me, and the bank's down will always be a part of my cricket life. And, um, yeah, and so I'm, I'm coaching as well, so great cricket still plays a reasonable part of my life. Yeah, that's excellent, Wayne. And um, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's really been interesting hearing your stories and hearing about your journey in cricket and, and what you're up to these days. Um, it's been great having you on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. A massive thank you to Wayne Holsworth for joining us on this edition of the Cricket Library podcast. What a great story. Someone who rose through the grades in grade cricket, played first grade at 19, went on to have the opportunity to play for New South Wales, debuting in a team that was star-studded. Only he and Phil Emery, who hadn't played for Australia at that point in time, taking a wicket with your first ball in first-class cricket. How good's life at that stage? And then knocking over another one in your first over. And then doing what he did with the ball for New South Wales consistently over a number of years, playing in those those Sheffield Shield wins and New South Wales being a dominant force in domestic cricket for a number of years there. And great to hear those insights around the culture of the team and what Steve Rickson brought to the group. And, of course, hearing about the Ashes Tour in 1993, what a thrill that must have been to be a part of that and for him to take a hat-trick on that tour is something that he'll long remember even though it may not have been out well sounds like it wasn't out actually that the hat-trick ball but you'd definitely be claiming it and remembering it all the same no DRS back in those days with Australia playing Derbyshire there but a great chat with Wayne Holsworth and looking forward to more great chats in the coming weeks make sure you subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or whichever podcast subscription service you prefer to use, iTunes, Spotify, wherever. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on anything and have a listen back to anything that you've missed. Uh, We've had Nina Stevens, Greg Campbell, Marty Roan and tell your friends about it, give us a rating and spread the word about the Cricket Library podcast and we'll be bringing you more great episodes in the future. But from Matt Ellis, it is bye for now.